for me, this is one of the most exciting things about this profession right now is that um, anybody can have access to an incredible amount of high quality information without having to have a security clearance or access to informants. You, you, you know, so people who are getting in the field today are just are just light years ahead of where I was in the in the late 80s and being able to do it. A lot of the information I get is available open source, right? It's a matter of kind of doing the work to figure out where are those sources of information, evaluating those sources of information, and making sure that you can corroborate them. There are some information you get some from some um, personal relationships. There are some sort of closed networks of information that you have to have some criteria to get access to. But really, most private sector companies could do could have an excellent intelligence program that takes care of their operations and their personnel using only open source information. Hello and welcome to Conversations with Bacon. I hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Of course, don't forget my book, People Powered, How Communities Can Supercharge Your Business Brand and Team, is available in all good bookshops and some mediocre bookshops, some terrible bookshops, and maybe just lying around in some trash cans. That's completely fine. So thank you for joining me. I'm so thrilled to bring on a really kind of a different guest this time onto the podcast. This is uh, Dean Baratta, who is the Senior Manager of Intelligence and Protective Services at GitHub. How are you doing, Dean? Very good. Thanks for having me on today. Yeah, I'm so thrilled to talk to you. So, um, you know, my wife, Erica, introduced me to you. Um, uh, and the way her, her introduction was not particularly specific. I've heard you mention in the past, <laughs> but she said, Dean is amazing. He should go on your podcast. That, that was the most of the context. So, <laughs> you know, she introduced us and you work in intelligence. And uh, let me first of all, go through the rap sheet. You've had, frankly, a way more interesting background than pretty much everybody who I've ever had on this show. Um, so you, uh, you've been in intelligence for most of your career. You were with the New Jersey State Police. You're an intelligence analyst uh, with the United States Army. You know, you were creating policies and procedures uh, regarding access to Bagram Airfield, all kinds of other stuff. Um, you were at the New Jersey Office of Homeland Security and Preparedness. Uh, you were chief uh, chief of the Analysis Bureau. Um, and then you kind of moved on into more of the kind of the commercial world. You were at WeWork, where you were a senior manager of threat intelligence and security. You were designing programs around hiring intelligence analysts and and handling executive protection operations, all kinds of interesting stuff. And uh, these days you're at GitHub as a senior uh, senior manager of intelligence and protective services. And I know outside of that, you're an adjunct pr uh, professor at Rutgers University, uh, uh, all, ki all kinds of good stuff going on. So clearly you're very interested <laughs> in <laughs> <Yeah>. intelligence. <laughs> Let's start right at the beginning. Um, uh, and there's an irony here because I consider myself to be a not particularly intelligent individual talking to someone who is both intelligent <laughs> and in working in intelligence. What do you define as intelligence? Because it seems like it could be a really pretty broad brush, right? It, it really can. And I think fundamentally um, in the profession, uh, we've, I think we've generally settled on intelligence or at least intelligence analysis as providing insight and context to decision makers to help them make better policy decisions um, or um, decisions about how to run whatever it is they're running, whether it is a military unit or a tech company or anything like that. Um, and in, in my 
um, uh, lane, my section of that, um, I focus on safety, security, those sorts of things, right? So you may have business intelligence who's looking at competitors. You might have financial intelligence who's looking at um, investments. I'm, I'm looking uh, really at the safety and security field. So who might want to do um, harm to our employees, um, our business, that sort of thing. Um, and also um, not always human created, right? So we're in the middle mm. of this COVID pandemic. So what are the implications for um, for your organization, for your people in that organization? And it's, right. it's um, being able to um, provide that context and that insight. So like I said, so that those senior decision makers can make better decisions. It's, it's so interesting, I think what you do, because um, this is a conversation that can go down so many different paths. Um, but I'd like to kind of start out at the beginning of the journey, which is kind of how you got into this. Because uh, I, I wasn't I wasn't trying to be facetious earlier on in saying that you've had a particularly interesting journey with your life. Um, but what is it that kind of got you excited to get into this line of work? Because, you know, a lot of people could could be interested in in, especially intelligence as it pertains to safety, but be a little nervous about getting in, into that world and the implications for that and any potential risk to you as an individual. So what kind of, what excites you and got you into this? Um, it's, it's interesting. I, um, when I tell my students now about it, this is, uh, I haven't met a lot of people um, like me, but I wanted to be in this field before I knew it was a possibility or it was an actual job title. So I was that student, unfortunately, in high school who got kind of excited when teachers assigned research projects. Um, you know, right. or said, okay, we've got, we've got a big 20 page paper to write. And I was the one kid in class who was like, oh, that's awesome. Um, yeah. and I loved doing research. I loved answering questions. I loved trying to figure out why do people do things. And simultaneously, I was um, really big sort of um, history buff and very interested in, you know, how societies move and, his, you know, how people move history um, and, and yeah. sort of the big events that drive it. And as I was finishing up high school um, and I was planning on going to university, um, I don't know, something just didn't feel right for me to move right into university. I, I really felt a drive to go out and uh, do some adulting, uh, as, uh, right. as they say. Um, <laughs> and uh, there was never really a strong tradition in my household, but somehow uh, I decided I wanted to um, explore the military um, and thought that would be an opportunity for me to really test myself, um, uh, put myself in a totally new environment. I was not a stereotypical, um, I was not the person you would think would join the military, pretty sickly, super introverted, um, not physically uh, inclined whatsoever. Um, and yet, as I was talking to the recruiters and looking through the various job books, I came across intelligence analysis and it just, uh, it just lit up my, my eyes. Um, mm. It was all about trying to figure out what your opponent was going to do, trying to sort of outsmart them and anticipate their next moves. And I, I don't know, I couldn't think of anything else I wanted to do um, yeah. at that point. Um, and this was uh, way back when dinosaurs roamed the earth in the, in the, during the cold <laughs> war. So, and then I had an opportunity to go to Germany too. Um, and, you know, so it was NATO versus Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact. I mean, the stakes could not have been higher. And there I was, an yeah. 18 year old doing that stuff. And it was just, 
um, for me, it was an opportunity, certainly at that age, to do things I could never have imagined that I would be able to do. Um, yeah. yeah it, it seems interesting there because the, you often hear when people join the army uh, that they do it for patriotic reasons. You know, they, they want to go and fight for their country or they join the army because they are very physically motivated or they're, you know, they're interested in weaponry or there's a multitude of different reasons. And it seems to me that in what you're sharing here is that it's not necessarily just about being kind of the response to a threat. It's actually about preempting. It's the, it's the strategic chess game of figuring out what the opponent's going to be doing. And that seems to be threaded throughout your career. Is that a fair assessment? It's not just the research. It's kind of, it's the, it's the strategy and the chess playing of figuring out what those next steps are going to be, which is, there's got to be a lot of intuition there, right? It is. I mean, yes. Um, and that has been a significant driver for my career. I, I do have an idealistic streak. So, um, mm. even I, again, right. When you think of stereotypical, um, military, um, why people might want to be in a military, you think about people who want to blow stuff up and shoot stuff. And, right. and there is an appeal to that. I won't deny it. But, um, for me, it really was always about, I, I, I want to make things better for people. Um, and so I still remember now there was one point about midway through my career. I had been about 10 years in and uh, I was in a military class and um, we had some instructors there um, from Canada who were talking about the Rwandan genocide. And right. um, uh, one of them had served um, in Rwanda during that time and, and really sort of highlighted um, some missed opportunities by some of the peacekeepers there to keep people safe. And mm. I realized, um, you know, at that point I was thinking about, do I want to stay in or, or, or get out of the military? And I said, you know, it is 99% chance I will never be faced with a decision where I might have to risk my career or, you know, save people. Um, but if that scenario does occur, um, I want to be there because I think I will make the right decision. Um, and that really has threaded throughout my, my entire career that, that desire that if something was to happen, I, I would like to be in that, that right place and, and have that opportunity to make that decision. Or as I'm getting towards the end of my career, I want to be able to influence the next generation of folks coming up so that hopefully they won't, but if they are in that position, they will make that, that good decision. It's such an honorable, honorable position to take as well. Um, and, and it's, uh, it's it's so refreshing when you know so many people are kind of <laughs> out for their own personal gain or ego or whatever else. It's nice to hear the opposite. Now, when it comes to the work that you do, um, I'd love to get like a little bit of a sense of like when you're working in this kind of area of intelligence, like what a little bit of what the day to day looks like, right? So, you know, you mentioned, for example, coronavirus, right? So, in the early stages of this pandemic kind of kicking off, what were some of the things that were on your radar? What were some of the things that you were evaluating? Because I imagine that this is going to re relate to both the, you know, security and safety is going to be physical safety and security, such as executive protection, right? But then there's also um, kind of network security and, you know, the, the threat of an, on an online threat. But, you know, just using a practical example of something like coronavirus, what were the kind of things that you were taking into account? That was a um, it's fascinating um, uh, scenario as it unfolded. I had just started at GitHub maybe four weeks before in, in early January. And oh, wow. um, 
So it was late January, early February, and um, the COO, Erica, uh, called me up and said, hey, there's all these reports about these infections in China. Um, what does this mean for us? Um, you know, and she didn't put it in this way, but essentially, uh, okay, hotshot, we're paying you money. Uh, you're supposed to be the <laughs> Intel guy. Um, all right, earn your we'll key, do some right? work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, <laughs> show us what you got. So um, that was a really interesting challenge. Um, I'm not a healthcare professional. I'm not an ep- epidemiologist, but in the, that's kind of the the whole point of this field is you need um, many of us need to be generalists and need to be able to um, yeah. pretty quickly um, evaluate up, right? information. Yep, yeah. um, uh, determine what's credible, um, uh, identify new sources that are reliable that you can go to again, and um, and distill that so that you can pass that again. Um, whether you're talking to a COO or a CEO, um, um, I love getting into all the weeds, but um, they don't have four hours, six hours a day to, um, you know, to go down the rabbit holes I'm going down. So I need to distill mm. all that down, uh, get to the real crux of the matter and tell them in maybe it's five minutes, maybe it's a, a one page written document where um, enough information that they can make um, decisions. So in this case, mm. the initial um, questions were, we have operations in the APAC area. And, and at first it looked like this was going to be a regional issue um, initially. And right. um, so what does this mean for the APAC region? Can uh, can all of our salespeople travel? Um, uh, do, what do we have to do with um, guests into our spaces? Do we have to um, implement any new um, measures? What about business travel, right? So those are on one level, those are business decisions. They, you know, superficially don't have a security element. They also kind of do, right? Because if um, our people get sick, well, they um, that's a, that's a bad in and of itself because they're unwell. But it also means that there's um, impacts to the business, right? And that cascades through. Yeah. So that was um, sort of the first issue um, that came up, and and one of the things that was super instructive for me is from my background in the government. I was very used to relying on the U.S. government as sort of, um, let's not say the source of truth. That might be a little strong, but let's say a right. source of truth. A significant source of truth, yeah. And so um, one thing I always encourage my um, my junior analysts or my students is, you know, make sure you're examining your biases and, and really spend time thinking about your errors. And mine was um, I spent a lot of time um, – quoting and referencing the CDC and um, the federal government's guidelines at the time, which um, by, I think, late February, that's when we started figuring out that, no, we can't rely on that anymore. Mm, and mm. Um, uh, again, as somebody who spent decades in the government, that it broke my heart to have to tell um, our leadership team in the company that I no longer have credit, you know, um, I no longer have feel that the federal government is credible um, on all of their assessments. and. Yeah. Yeah, that, you know, just seeing that on my uh, summary slide uh, for the briefing for that day uh, really sort of took my breath away. Um, Yeah, it's so sad. Yeah. Right. And but then as an analyst, now I have to sort of recalibrate. Where can I go now for reliable information? What can I use to confirm or deny now what um, uh, what the what the U.S. government is saying? Um, and mm. that caused its own sort of um, little process to go on uh, to to begin to sort of validate information again. And um, 
this sounds, this probably sounds very strange, but that's, that's fun, right? Um, yeah. It is right. going through that process again and you're trying to revalidate and, um, and make sure that the end product is something that um, you're proud of, you have confidence in because ultimately I'm accountable for that product that I'm passing on to the, to the right. leadership. Right. It's, it's, it's interesting as well because it seems like you're probably going to be just the first line of, not just dependable information for a company such as GitHub or other companies that you've worked with, but also the first line of maybe a little bit of emotional kind of um, reassurance for some of these companies. Because I imagine that when something happens or when there is a threat that is forming in the world that may be a risk to a company or to the country, um, you're not only helping to, to advise on what do we know and what does this mean for decision-making, but also providing a comfort level and, and a risk level so they can so the, the leaders can make effective decisions as opposed to making emotional decisions is that fair to say yeah and that's that's a really important part of our field that often doesn't get talked enough about which is um, what we call audience analysis right so yes I have to do analysis of potential threats, whether it's man-made or natural but I also have right. to do analysis of my own organization and my own uh, leadership team and the people who are going to be consuming my products, right? Because there may be, um, uh, there may be some folks who aren't used to talking about security, safety threats. Um, and so might be a little more sensitive and their anxiety level might go up unnecessarily, right. maybe sometimes, right? So, mm. uh, I have to make sure that I am crafting a message in a way that is going to, that's going to be received, um, and understood. Um, as much as possible. And then likewise, um, you know, some analysts in the profession kind of have a chicken little syndrome where they're always yelling, the sky is falling. Um, but mm. that erodes credibility, right? If you, if you keep, um, and this was really big after 9-11, if you keep going to the public or to decision makers saying, you know, oh no, you know, it's, uh, there's going to be an attack next week. It's, it's, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Well, Eventually, you'll just get tuned out and uh, yeah. you're just irrelevant. So you need to sort of cultivate that credibility, which um, is a time-consuming process, right? Because the decision maker needs to establish that trust and and establish that track, re track record with you to where they know uh, if, if Dean comes in and says, this is a big problem, I yeah. know I need to drop things and, and we got to pay attention to it now. Yeah. How much of it is kind of delivering information and how much of it is kind of modeling predictions? Um, it's, it's, it's both. I'd have to, that's a good question. I have to think about the sort of where, where I place the percentages, but um, uh, back when I was a more junior analyst, I didn't really think about the messaging at all. I, I, I mm. had, uh, I was all ego. And so I was like, look, if they don't understand my product, that's their problem. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. I'm, an, I'm an artiste. Uh, I work, <laughs> I work in information like other artists work in oils and clays. Right. Um, and yeah. it's your job to figure out what I'm trying to say. That was, um, completely worthless. Right. Um, because I was writing stuff that I enjoyed, but, uh, nobody was, nobody was reading it. Understandably mm. so. Um, it wasn't sort of, um, tailored for them. It wasn't made easy for them. If for some reason, sort of subconsciously, I felt that people needed to work to understand my product, which is stupid. So, 
um, I had a breakthrough at some point in my career and said, you know, it's much easier if I, if I see my, um, customers as partners and I help them, right? I'm helping them understand these problems. I'm mm, helping them mm. work through these issues. And this seems really simple. I mean, it's basic customer service, but for some reason, um, in this field, it took me a while to get. Um, uh, but once I saw my customer as my partner, um, somebody who I'm going to sort of work with um, on particular problems and issues, that really was a, a huge turning point. And that, yeah. uh, you know, doors just began to open up um, both yeah. personally, but also in terms of um, helping out those decision makers and, and, and seeing them get more confident in the decisions they were making because they actually had information that they could use. And, and I imagine that there's going to be many leaders who you've worked with in these companies who have never worked with someone like you, like maybe somebody who's been at a smaller startup and then they've gone into a big company in a big role or, or the company's hired someone like such, such as yourself for the first time. I presume that there's just a period of adaptation where suddenly they're getting kind of, it must be weird. I'm putting myself in the position of someone like this because I've never experienced this, but it must be weird working for a company and then suddenly you're hearing about you know potential threats in different regions of the world that that relate to your workforce or relate to the security of the overall company that's got to be a, i'm guessing you've got to kind of like guide them through that process right as as partners yeah it's it's weird weird on uh on both ends um for the um uh, look for the company people like me are a luxury. I mean, I'll just be honest, right? Like I'm a cost center. I, I, mm. I will, I don't make, nobody writes a check, um, for, for me, uh, to the company. Mm. Right. So I'm, I'm very cognizant of that, um, in, in the private sector that I need to deliver value, right. Um, in, in some degree. And, and that really, um, requires the decision makers, the leadership team to, to see value in the, insight and information I'm giving them. So that's one reason why I need to make sure that I am working with them. Right. And I am, um, I am, uh, I, I don't mean this pejoratively, but I need to educate them in what I yeah. can do, what I can offer them. Um, but by the same token for folks in my field, oftentimes we come from government or we come from military or we come from law enforcement sectors. And that's a very different culture than private sector. And yeah. so it is not uncommon. I have seen it myself, um, and I, uh, cringe a little bit, you'll see folks who come, um, out of those fields and they'll come into a private sector where people are not used to talking about threats and security. And, um, these Intel analysts or these security folks will come in and they will talk like, um, they are 50 meters away from the green zone in Iraq. Right. And, mm, uh, mm. you know, they want to have <laughs> helicopters and attack dogs and barbed wire and, and they start throwing out acronyms and they sound like, you know, a drill sergeant in a movie. Um, and look, you will scare off people with that sort of, um, that sort of talk. Right. Um, it's right. just, it's too intimidating. It's too much too soon. Um, and nobody has any context for it. Yeah. So it's, it's really sort of, um, understanding yourself and where you're coming from and sort of adjusting what you've learned, the skills, which can apply everywhere, but, but, um, having them sort of adjust to the culture that you're in and making them appropriate. And so a, a good example for us was in the, 
um, I, I think it was in the wake of the um, January 6th riots. Um, we have uh, a number of employer, empl- employees, we call them hubbers, um, mm. in the Washington, D.C. area. And um, rightly so, um, a lot of them were really concerned. What's going to happen next, right? Like there's, yeah. there's yeah. people running through the streets. They're attacking the Capitol. So um, we did a, a little session. Um, I think uh, – there were a couple other people, but I did a little session for, for hubbers in the area, giving them my assessment and, um, making sure they knew what are the likely implications there, um, and, and what they might, some mitigation efforts they might be able to take, right? Um, mm. but oftentimes, but I need to be cognizant that when I'm briefing people, you know, in this terms, like the general public, um, it is easy to sound like one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? Um, my whole life right. is centered around people who want to do bad things to other people. So um, I can focus on that. I'm comfortable in that range. But, you know, I'm briefing, you know, somebody who isn't. And, oh, my God, this sounds horrible. I need to move right yeah. now. And you go, no, no, no. Um, the risk is still low. Um, what we're talking about is sort of the things on the sort of fringe of likelihood, but we want you to be prepared for that in the eventuality that that have the information. Yeah. Yeah, Especially when they're scared, right? When people are scared um, and therefore probably a little bit more, well, by definition, more jumpy to what, what, you know, to risk. Um, How, how much do you need to work at at keeping that balance in, in your mind? What I mean by this, and it's a very general way of asking this, but you you just said that you know you need to you you work in this all of the time right so your you know your monday morning coffee is probably includes reading some pretty gnarly stuff and, and seeing some pretty gnarly stuff that's occurring in the world and most people's monday morning coffee is very very different it could be easy to forget that right in, in the same way that there's the old saying of that the queen thinks everywhere smells like fresh paint right because right. that's the world that she's in do you have to work at that? Do you have to work at reminding yourself that the general public just, they're not used to this, right? Um, it's, it's easier now, but certainly earlier in the career, in my career, um, it's really easy to fall into that, um, issue. And so I know when I had, um, my own team of, of some junior analysts, they would be, and it's not even a Monday morning thing. I'll be honest with you. I think mo- a lot of people who are in this field, it's their life, right? Um, my, yeah poor wife um, who will look over to me on a Saturday night and say, what are you reading? <laughs> oh, it's a white paper on the evolution of ISIS's ideology. It's really fascinating. And she'll just, you know, she's reconsidering her life choices at that point. It's kind, um, of, kind of romance. I get it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but um, certainly for sort of junior people, this is, this could be, um, it's very weighty stuff. It's, there's a lot of responsibility involved, but it's also kind of very exciting, right? When you're, if you think about somebody who might be 23, 24, and they're being asked by a senior government official, a senior um, official in a, in a large company, um, w- well, what do you think? What should we do, right? When you're getting questions like that and you're responsible for it, it becomes, cons- it's easy to become consuming, right? You don't yeah, want to get it imagine. wrong. But it also becomes easy to become, uh, to have calluses build up. And so there are times when, um, I was with some of my junior analysts. They're very excited. They're animated. We're all at like a lunch during business. Um, and they're talking about, uh, the latest 
um, terrorist video, the latest, uh, you know, um, active mass shooting, and they're bantering around and in there is some gallows humor. And then you sort of turn around and you see other families who are eating next, you know, in the table next to you. And they must be thinking, what is going on there? Like, do I need to call 911? Who are these people? Like, they're scaring me. Um, and, and so you do need to do reality checks and just go like, Hey, remember, like not everyone inhabits our world. Um, yeah. and we need to be really cognizant of that when we're talking to people because, um, you can't unnecessarily, um, really freak people out. And that's not good, right? We don't want that because yeah. a scared person is somebody, um, who can't be thoughtful and can't make, um, mm. you know, good rational decisions. So, yeah, um, we need to make sure we, we sort of temper that. It, this reminds me of a, a, a video I watched on YouTube. Of um, It was an interview with this guy who cleans up crime scenes. Uh, he mm-hmm. started doing this years and years ago. And, you know, someone would get murdered or would pass away in a house or whatever. And he would go along and he's got a company now and they basically clean everything up. Um, and he was interviewed for like 10 minutes about all of these just categorically insane things that he's seen in his life. Um and uh, what was so interesting about watching this video was that um, it was obvious that um, he'd not, it was not lost on him years later how unusual this is of a job. Yeah. And he'd not become numb to it. And I respect anyone who's able to do that because, I mean, you've been doing this for years and it could be easy to fall into the trap of what you consider to be a relatively low level threat would be to me uh, as a member of the general public, a major deal. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Um, and I, and I just, I, I, that, that requires a special level of, of thoughtfulness. And especially given the fact that it's reassuring to hear someone who does your kind of line of work and isn't a macho blowhard, right? Because I could imagine you could get some overly macho people who could get into this line of work of, I'm really excited about kind of threat intelligence and safety and things like that. And then kind of, goes down that route of not thinking that this is that big of a deal when in reality it totally is. Right. Right. And, and look, there is, um, uh, you know, I don't want to, um, I don't want to paint this as some sort of rosy picture. I mean, it is mm. rife within the, um, it, certainly within the extremist and terrorism research community. Um, PTSD is rife there. I would draw lines myself. Um, I, unfortunately um saw one beheading video years and years ago and i said that's it i'm never going to do that again um no it it it, for me as an analyst it provided no information it was just sort of um uh grotesque and and so that's the message i passed on to my analysts my my junior folks i said you know you may feel like you're not um you're not really in the profession unless you do the hard stuff you know you you, you show how tough you are. That's not true. That's nonsense. Um, if you, yeah. if you need it to get insight, um, or understanding, then you need to do it. But if you don't, um, there's no reason to expose yourself to trauma just to sort of like make some right. sort of in, inane point, right? Um, nobody's yeah. going to care. So, that, um, and, and now I've known, I, I'm sorry for, I, I've known people, no, go ahead. you know, there's some lines I couldn't do. I, I've known people who spent years working child exploitation and, totally fine. That's not something I could do. Right. I just, I I wouldn't, I wouldn't survive a day um, doing that work. So, you know, everyone has their own lines um, and and their own boundaries and they just sort of need to be aware of those. Yeah. It's, 
it, it kind of leads me to a, a, another couple of kind of a little few threads to pull on. One is where you get information and the role of that information. Like, are you primarily accessing information sources that are available generally, but in kind of hidden corners of the internet? Or how much of this is kind of personal relationships that uh, an information being passed and uh, you know because in in, the, in you know in the in the police service right people will have informants and things like that but how do how where do you get this information to help you to craft these information products that you share with your company for me this is one of the most exciting things about this profession right now is that um uh Anybody can have access to an incredible amount of high quality information without having to have a security clearance or access to informants, you, you, you know, um, and so people who are getting in the field today are just are just light years ahead of where I was in the in the yeah, late 80s and being able to do it. And so it's right. Um, and uh, the, the last government job I had, I was working for a state agency and we didn't have a lot of money. So we didn't have a lot of money to purchase a lot of subscriptions to um, third-party vendors that would do, you know, live translations of, of foreign language stuff. So um, we expressly went out and said, we're going to see what we can do at low cost or no cost. What can we do using open sources? What can we do leverage, you know, building relationships, um, yeah. you know, building those relationships and leveraging those, working with people in academia um, or or other other agencies or private sector that might be able to sort of um, fill in the pieces of the puzzle that we're looking for. And it was, it was, a, um, it was a great opportunity. And I think, I feel I'm going to pat myself on the back a little bit. I think we were really successful in that. So um, the short right. answer to your question is um, a lot of the information I get is available open source, right? It's a matter of kind of doing the work to figure out where are those sources of information, evaluating those sources of information, and making sure that you can corroborate them. There yeah. are some, I, I won't deny, I won't lie, there are some information you get some from some um personal uh, um, relationships. There are some yeah. sort of closed networks of information that you have to have some criteria to get access to. But really, um, uh, uh, most private sector companies could do could have an excellent intelligence program that takes care of their operations and their personnel using only open source information. Um, yeah. Absolutely, that's, you could do that and do a that's great so job. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I imagine that given how long you've been working in this line of work, I mean, it, it would be naive to suggest that you don't have a network of people who you can probably just drop a note to who you've known and trusted for years and say, hey, what's your take on this? Or what's your take on that? Um, one other thing as well, you know, one, one of the things you often hear um, a lot of journalists being very concerned about when they're looking into areas such as such as child exploitation or terrorism is that the act of them soliciting information or the act of them consuming information online potentially puts them at risk for being, you know, a negative entity and a suspect. Um, how do you go about, you know, for example, if you're looking at, if you, I know that you didn't go out to look at a, a beheading video, but if you're looking at that kind of material and you have to, and it's going to add value to your information product, how do you protect yourself? How do you 
not I, I'm not just talking about kind of PTSD. I just mean legally be able to find this information, even if it's available out, out there, in a way that you're not going to get on some list. <laughs> you know? So, um, yeah, I get that question a lot. Um, now it does vary country to country, um, but certainly in the right. United States, um, it's it's generally not a problem if you're doing research. Um, uh, you know, there is not, you know, you're just not going to get a knock on the door. Now, if you, if you, um, if you start sharing some of that, um, extremist or illegal content, then you might get on a list, right? Um, but if yeah. you're, if you're sort yeah. of passively absorbing it, um, uh, generally it's, it's not, it's not a, a problem for academics who do it. They have particular, um, requirements and guidelines they have to maintain to make sure that they're not um, yeah. violating any sort of ethical issues. But um, no, you know, you read the um, the latest, uh, you know, Al-Qaeda magazine or ISIS magazine or whatever. Um, it's it's not really a problem. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, we don't we don't want you getting locked up, Dane. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we prefer that. Didn't down, yeah, yeah. But, you know, <laughs> even even if even if again, I mean, um, most of the issues surrounding that, in as my understanding, um, it involves people who are kind of resharing that information, right? They're they're amplifying it. They're not just absorbing it themselves. So right. that's yeah. that's a big that's that's a big dividing line. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Now, a lot of people who are going to be listening to this uh, are probably going to be running businesses, or they're going to be on the executive team of a business. Like, what would you say is kind of the tripwire point for a business where they need to start thinking about this kind of intelligence? Is it a particular size or is it what kind of business you're like, what vertical market you're in? When should someone start thinking about having a function in their organization where they can bring in their very own dean? So probably this is probably the, um, the part that Erica hates hearing when I say this is, is a lot of this is really, um, a, a call by the leadership team of mm. how much risk they're comfortable with. Um, right. so, uh, and, and look, like the examples we've talked about have been ISIS and Al Qaeda and things like that. And so look, you could have a business and go, none of that applies to me, right? That's fine. But, um, you don't have to look far around the world. If you have operations in any number of countries now, um, where the government, um, may be passing new legislation that is targeting foreign businesses, right? For, because they want right. to pressure them for political gain or, um, for shakedowns or there's corruption or, um, you're expanding in areas that have a high, even, a, even in the United States that have a high crime problem, right? And mm. maybe the, the building you're using is in a quote unquote good neighborhood, but, um, the route that your employees have to commute to get into is not. Um, and maybe you want to, you know, and if your employees are afraid to go to work, um, that's going to impact the work that they can do. Right. So, yeah. um, again, this is um, some of this, like I said, really does depend on how much of an appetite for risk you have. But as a general rule, I would certainly say if you're, um, beginning to open up in new markets that you're not really familiar with, that's a good time mm. to, maybe you don't need somebody full-time. Maybe you want to contract somebody out to do um, a few assessments and yes, um, gauge from right. there, right? And then gauge from there, like, you know what, we need more of this sort of stuff. We and, and we need somebody who really understands our business. So we need to bring somebody in-house to do that. Um, but maybe, you know, maybe you only need that once or twice a year and you're comfortable with a 
you know, again, I don't want to be pejorative, but let's say a more generic piece. And so you can hire an yep. outside firm that can, that can sort of get you 90% of the way there. Right. And that might be good to start. Um, so yeah. 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 It's, it, yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, it's, uh, like you say, I, I, I guess at some point, I, I can imagine that a lot of companies are just kind of trucking along, doing their thing, and they don't really even necessarily think about a huge amount of risk outside of things like, you know, getting hacked and protecting the, the information of their customers and things like that. But then, I, to your point, you know, if you start expanding into certain regions, into certain areas, or you become a threat, uh, sorry, you yeah. become a target rather, what kind of businesses would you say tend to become focused targets where they become they, they're in the crosshairs for some particular reason so it depends on <laughs> i'm an analyst so my, i'm going to like preface every answer with it depends of course right? yeah, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, it, it does depend on the industry type and the geographic area so for example in many places in africa the extractive industries um tend to be because you know whether it's the oil and gas industry or whatever um they tend to be the focus of money and um if you have corruption and you have Locals who um, don't see the benefit of all that um, all that work, um, they may target um, those industries. So there, right. um, in other parts of the world, the tech industry, because of intellectual property um, and because just of the the sheer amount of sort of cash involved in that industry, um, mm. lots of lots of room um, there. We, we've seen a lot of. We just saw the um, Colonial Pipeline and the ransomware attack, right? Yeah, so. Yeah. Um, that is um, that is a threat that is not going to go anyway any anytime soon. I mean, it's incredibly lucrative. Um, mm. uh, gee, it's almost like you know. Uh, now I'll become like the chicken little I warned you about. Um, you can almost sort of look <laughs> anywhere and see opportunities. Um, um, for various threats, right? Um, uh, yeah. Even recently, uh, between or not recently, last year, the "quote unquote" hostage diplomacy between China and Canada, when uh, mm. there was um, right, we had the um, uh, arrest of a Huawei uh, executive, and yep. um, China then uh, detained a couple of um, Canadian business people. So, uh, how likely is that happen to? Is that going to happen to your business? Not sure. Like that's, that's one of the reasons you need somebody to sort of take a, a good look, um, and, and sort of do a deep dive and determine what your vulnerability is and how likely is your organization to show up on somebody's radar, um, that might want yeah. to do some harm. Yeah. Do you, do you find that, um, you know, I'm sure that most of the large companies, I mean, we've talked a bit about GitHub today, but I'm sure that most of the large companies out there have got their own deans. Um, who yeah. are who are who are who are doing this kind of work, um, and the, a lot of that work, I imagine, is operating in a bit of a silo as it pertains to the specific risks and profile of those organizations. Is there a lot of sharing of information? So, for example, you know, your example of the of the the, the Chinese hostage situation. If there is an increased level of risk in a particular area, such as that. Um, are companies sharing this information with each other so they can benefit each other and keep it, you know, each other safe, or does it tend to be pretty siloed? There's there's a lot of sharing. I I I couldn't put a percentage on it, but there's uh, yeah. really vibrant uh, communities communities plural of sharing. Um, the U.S. State Department Good. has something called OSEC, which they sort of host in order to facilitate a lot of that sharing. Awesome. Um, you know, the American taxpayers 
totally get their money's worth um, from that endeavor. But even on the Great. side, um, a lot of institutions um, or a lot of sort of just Intel and security shops on their own will develop their own little networks or benchmarking communities and right. um, will talk all the time and share information. And that is really nice because for um, many of us, there are the biggest companies have large security departments, right? And um, But yeah. for some of us, we're it. There, there might be a shop of one Intel person, right? Um, and they're all yeah. alone. So um, part of the intelligence process, what's really important is being able to sort of talk through um, uh, ideas and issues and methodologies and bounce them off and uh, each other and play devil's advocate and, and try to sort of make sure that we're um, minimizing our biases as much as possible. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's so fascinating. Um, you know, one, one of the things I, I find so interesting about talking to you, Dean, is that there is the work itself, right? And then there is, there is the presentation of the results. Um, and then I imagine that there's, there's iteration that like these situations are never standing still. They're constantly moving. Um, you know, when you've got a situation that is moving quickly, um, I mean, a good example of that, I would say, is is the pandemic, you know, is that yeah. the science is evolving, the governmental responses are, are evolving, the, the public's um, perception and um, and concerns are evolving as well. What does the cadence look like? Like how, I'm presuming that this is based upon the situation and the severity of the situation, but how often are you engaging with these leaders in companies to provide them with updates and help them to make better decisions or to make them more informed decisions in terms of how they react to them. Yeah. So pretty early on, we tried to establish a regular cadence where um, we would touch base with a sort of an, a crisis management team um, on a regular basis, let's say once a week, um, once things right. got into a, um, a regular sort of routine. But that does not mean that there aren't spikes in tempo um, that, um, pop up and warrant um, more frequent um, irregular communications. So I'm thinking in particular of um, it was some point last year um, as the uh, as the pandemic was sort of raging across the U.S. and Europe when it was announced that the U.S. was going to sort of close our borders to sort of all, all international travel. And there were right. a bunch of sort of American residents in Europe who had like 24, 48 hours to figure out how to get back into the States, right? Um, or yeah. at least initially, that's what the thought was, was like, if you don't catch a plane in 24 hours, you're stuck. We don't know yeah. the next time you're coming back in the country. And that was the, <laughs> right. that was the thought. Um, and so I remember I saw that at night. I saw the presidential address at night. There was like no, almost no details, but we knew that was going to be a problem, right? So immediately, um, hmm. we're reaching out to the leadership team and we're saying, Hey, we don't know who yet, but, we think it's highly likely that we're going to have um, hovers who are going to get caught or are at risk of getting caught. So we need to start the planning process now about what we're going to do. And we need to try to identify who might be caught. Um, you know, and so that picked up the pace really quickly for a short period of time. Um, yeah. Same thing now with India, right? Um, as mm, mm. Um, for most of last year, um, it looked like India was beating the pandemic. And so, um, I don't want to say we, um, were complacent with it, but we, I checked on it, you know, every few days, um, didn't see anything dramatic change. There wasn't a whole lot to report about it. Um, and 
I noted that that in and of itself was unusual and that we expected a lot more, but, you know, we couldn't really um, figure out why. Um, But then once things started to um, escalate and cases started to get much, much worse in India, um, the tempo with regard to what happens there picked up as well, right? Um, Because Mm, we want to respond. We want to keep people safe. We want to make sure also, gee, is there anything that's business critical that might be endangered, um, that might you know, cascade throughout the company and how do we account for that? And, um, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. Fascinating. What, um, I'd like to change gears a little bit as we kind of bring this into the close. Um, you've mentioned a few times about your students and I know you do a lot of teaching here and I'd love to kind of dig into that because you mentioned earlier on about, you know, helping the next generation of people who are doing your kind of work. Um, and I'd like to break this into, into two, kind of two pieces. One is that kind of the leadership lessons that you've learned um, throughout the course of your career and someone who's listening to this and somebody's interested in this kind of work, um, what you've learned from just kind of how you lead this work and how you apply the, you know, the findings from this kind of work to other leadership teams, like those overall leadership principles. And then secondly, what have you learned when it comes to the actual execution of the work? Because what I think is so fascinating about this is you've got is you're dealing with massive amounts of information, right? In a time sensitive mm-hmm. and a heightened level of stress context. And you've got to be able to process and chunk all of that down into something that's going to help people to make d- good decisions quickly. So what are the key things you've learned throughout that? So um, if you're if somebody's thinking about this field, um, they have to be comfortable working. Um, without perfect knowledge and they have to be comfortable working with a right. lot of uncertainty. That's just, that's just hardwired in the profession. And so, mm. um, that takes a while. And certainly, um, you can see in a lot of, you'll see in a lot of assessments, whether it's released to the public or whatever, um, it's not uncommon for analysts to want to try to hedge their bets. And so you'll, you know, you'll see sort of wishy-washy assessments like, um, you know, we think there's an even chance that something will happen. And you're like, well, great. You just told me to flip a coin, right? Um, you didn't really help me at all there um, and give me any insight. But there's, there's a lot of like, well, on one hand, but on the other hand, um, and you can see when I see those, I immediately think the analyst is sort of um, struggling and isn't really confident in their assessment. And so they're, they're trying to sort of have it both ways. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, but I, I can remember numerous times when a senior decision maker would turn to an analyst. Maybe that was me. Maybe that was a junior analyst on my team and said, you know, I can think of one time in specific where they said they had a phone in their hand and they said, I'm calling the governor now. I need to know what to do. You got to tell wow. me, you know, what is your assessment? And that was a question to like a 23 year old who was, you know, one year, two years out of, uh, out of university. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> wow. And she did not have perfect information, but she made the call. Right. And that's, you just, ha- you have to um, be willing to grow into a level of comfort with that level of uncertainty with also the understanding that you will be wrong, right? There will be errors um, and you need to own them and you need to learn from them. And then you need to drive on. Um, I yeah. know people who are not comfortable in that realm of uncertainty. 
it's not a profession for them. It's just, it, you know, it just doesn't work out for them. Otherwise you're, um, you know, you're always looking, I just want that one more piece of information. I just want, and it never ends, right? You're always looking for that one magic piece of data that's going to um, answer all your questions. And it, it just doesn't exist. So, yeah. um, being yeah. comfortable with that. And I'm sorry, the second part of your question again. Yeah. I mean, and then just kind of the, just the overall, just doing the work. Cause it strikes me that you, you, you've got massive levels of information that you're kind of pulling together, right? Just, I'm curious about, I imagine that when you started doing this, it was not only did you not have full access, full access to knowledge, but just in how you construct something that you can interface with a group of people who aren't familiar with that and, and, and who are nervous about a particular situation. It's that intersection layer, like that I'm curious, curious about, like, how does it, how does it, connect to the other team what have you learned in in collecting that information and then presenting it to to to, to the people in the company so in some ways uh, um the methodologies that we use are kind of the easiest stuff to learn i think um what took me i think the longest to learn and, and what i think most people who i see entering the field work the most at is the communicating of the findings being find doing that audience analysis and finding the right way to communicate and so um, uh, stereotypical Intel analysts. We are all, um, raging introverts and we all want to sort of sit in a cubbyhole and not talk to anyone and just communicate via, um, Slack message or emails, right? And pretend no one else ever right. exists. But that doesn't work, right? Um, if you're talking about something as important as sort of the continued functioning of your company, um, chances are somebody on that leadership team is going to want to look you in the eye. Right. Um, they're not going to be happy with just a memo sort of coming out of the ether. And so you have to be able to um, communicate effectively, um, answer questions and concerns. Right. With a, with a level of credibility and be able to sort of answer all those follow ups that will come that should um, that come along with with an assessment that you make. Uh, and yeah. demonstrate that sort of command of the information, as well as talk about um, the gaps that you might have in your in your information. And you should be able to sort of talk all talk through that coherently, cogently, and concisely. Um, yeah. That that's really the skill that um, uh, I think. It's funny. Be, um, sometimes it's not the number one thing that analysts think of. They think about what. You know, what new program can I use? What platform will help crunch the data better? Um, but a lot of times it comes down to that simple, uh, simple. It comes down to those communication skills and being able to convey that information. Yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dean, for coming on and sharing uh, so much about what you do. It's, I think it's so interesting. Uh, and not only that, but you do such meaningful work that really does make people safer and has a real tangible impact every single day. So I really appreciate you coming on and sharing it. Thank you very much. I, I love this. I could talk about this stuff all day long. So thank you for giving me, indulging me and giving me the opportunity to do so. Wonderful. Thank you. All right. Have a good day. Bye-bye.